Hey everybody, we're here again, this time with a history episode, an overtime episode for our patrons. If you would like to get the full thing, become a patron at patreon.com slash workstoppage. Uh, it's $5 a month. If you can't afford to do that, jump in the Discord and message one of the admins and we would be happy to hook you up with this. This is the preview and I hope you enjoy it. Solidarity forever. That's another thing when you look into like the backgrounds of the wealth of many other early capitalists, even northern ones in the U.S., they time after time after time you find out where, where they get their initial wealth. And it's from the slave trade. And this is really important to understand because it shows that for capitalism to emerge and thrive and become the dominant mode of production in the United States, it required really a double genocide because it required the genocidal theft of the land from the indigenous peoples. In the case of here in Rhode Island, the, the, mil, the land was taken from the Narragansett and Wampanoag peoples, but as well as the enslavement of millions of Africans to be used as free labor. And without the wealth from that, the US, like US capitalism could never have developed as rapidly and as strongly as it did. And so like, there is no separating, like the, the genocide of settler colonialism and the you know theft of human beings in the form of slavery from the history of the US industrial revolution and like because this is one of the things like growing up in new england like they all, there's always beaten into you like well look yes america had slavery and that was bad but we were the good guys in the north we didn't like slavery we abolished it very quickly and then we were the ones who got rid of it but that leaves out the fact that pretty much the entire ruling class here in the Northeast got all their money from the slave trade. <laughs> like they were benefiting from it just as much as the planter class in the South. And like, it, even to the point that basically like the, like one of the big manufacturing towns that sprung up in Southern Rhode Island in the late 18th century, early 19th century, um, uh, Peacedale was a, a, a an area actually set up by the Hazard family in Southern Rhode Island who had some of the biggest slave plantations in the entire North before the War of Independence. And all of that, I think th there's, a, there's a Marx quote that I, I really couldn't leave out here because it, when he wrote in Capital, Capital comes dripping from head to foot from every pore with blood and dirt. I mean, the U.S. and the development of its capitalist economy, I think, is a perfect illustration of that mm -hmm. because it's, it's dependent on this horrific violence from day one. And another aspect of it that we see with the development of the, you know, the nascent textile industry here in the Northeast is this idea that's commonly propagated by you know, proponents of capitalism that, oh, capitalism freed people. It freed the serfs from the land and gave them the opportunity to determine the course of their own lives. But when, for instance, just when we look at the empirical like, ways that this was happening, because like, while, of course, you know, the U.S. never had traditional-style feudalism, for a lot of its early history, the vast majority of the, the people in the country were farmers. And Slater found when he built his first textile mill here in Rhode Island that he had trouble finding people to come work at it because people had the opportunity like, well, I could go work on my own land and direct my own pace of work and control my own life, or I could come work in your mill, which is really shitty and you don't 
pay wages that are enough for me to live. So that's not much of a choice. Right. So, and, and we even saw this like with the first act of industrial sabotage when Slater built the dam needed to power the water-driven machinery for his mill, local citizens in Pawtucket not only protested the development because they used the river for both, you know, getting like fish, but also for just transit up and down. And the dam was going to disrupt that. And so in, when he was in the process of building it, the people of Pawtucket actually like in the middle of the night snuck down to it and dismantled the dam. (laughs) So that it couldn't be used. And eventually he did, you know, get it built. But I just love the fact that people were just like, this is fucking with our way of life. Should we sit around and complain about it? No, we'll just go take care of that. (laughs) Um, And I mean, we saw it wasn't just Slater because we, there was a, a whole rash of early mill owners who constantly complained that they couldn't find enough labor to operate their mills at full capacity. Because as soon as workers heard about any other business offering higher wages, they would just quit and leave and go work there, which, I mean, it makes perfect sense, but it's not the sort of thing that a business owner really likes to see. And mm-hmm. it's, it was just so funny to read that because it's, we hear the exact same shit today. Like with all the people, nobody wants to work anymore, blah, 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 blah. They have been saying that for over 200 years. <laughs> It, it, it's it's really wild and it's, like it's almost like nobody really wanted to work in the first place we just kind of do it because we have to yeah absolutely and so one other hallmark of the development of capitalism that is is exemplified in this opening of the very first mill slater's mill in Pawtucket, is how they specifically targeted like oppressed or, you know, minority groups in the region for exploitation as labor and in this case Slater ended up operating his mill mostly with child labor, like starting out employing orphans who he referred to as pauper apprentices, where he would employ kids as young as seven who were made to work in the mill for nothing for 12 to 15 hours a day in exchange for room and board. So slavery. More or less. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, Pretty much, but the and that's the funny thing, though, and this is where we you we see again in microcosm the clash between, like the contradictions that arise between slavery production and capitalist production. Because Slater, even though he wasn't paying the kids a wage, the fact that he had to pay for their living expenses, he just this is intolerable. This is too expensive. I hate this. I don't like doing this, and so. Eventually, he turned to hiring out kids from local families and paying them a wage rather than employing orphans that he would have to house and feed. And so for the first 30 years of the mill's operation, the majority of the labor force there were children. And they earned a whopping 30 to 60 cents per week, which uh, that probably sounds small. But remember, this is 1790. So, you know, there's been 200 years of of inflation. And so while it's kind of difficult to calculate, you know, money to money over that long of a period, Mm -hmm. I did try and use like some calculators to figure that out. And that turns out to be more or less the equivalent of $10 a week in today's money. Textile work is you. Textile work is you. Textile work is in. It's good in 
good enough for daddy. It's good enough for daddy. It's good enough for daddy. It's good enough. So give me that textile workers union. Give me that textile workers union. Give me that textile workers union. It's good enough for me. Well, it will bring us higher wages. It will bring us higher wages. It will bring us higher wages. It's good enough for me. Now it was good in Massachusetts. It was good in Massachusetts. It was good in Massachusetts. It's good enough for me. Yeah.